This is episode two with former Australian cricketer Adam Voges. Welcome to the Process of Success podcast. My name is Tom Scolle, former professional cricketer, now athlete mentor and online entrepreneur. Each week, we're going to discuss what it takes to achieve success so that you can use the tips, techniques and tactics to become your best. Whether it's sport, business, music, relationships or anything else, this is an insight into the minds and lives of some of the world's most successful people. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's get into today's episode. really excited about this interview with Adam Voges, not only because he's a teammate and good friend of mine, but because he's a very clever and thoughtful cricketer and person who has a wealth of knowledge to share with you guys. He's played all three forms of cricket for Australia, as well as playing in the IPL and numerous years of county cricket, and has been a brilliant and successful captain and leader in the latter parts of his career. In this episode, we discussed what his younger years looked like and how often he trained, what changes he made to take his game to a new level, how he bounced back from a difficult period in test cricket, what his mental routine is between balls, what characteristics and similarities he's seen in the world's best players he's played with and against, what traits a good leader should have. This is an awesome episode, so let's get into it. G'day guys, welcome to the Process of Success podcast. I'm here today with former Australian cricketer Adam Voges. Vogesy, thanks very much for your time, thanks for joining us. No worries mate. Um, let's get started by taking you back to your childhood. Um, what's the earliest memory you have of uh, cricket and playing cricket? Uh, growing up, uh, Dad was a school teacher, so we moved around a little bit in my early childhood. Um, spent a couple of years out in Kalgoorlie um, and it wasn't really until I was about nine or ten where we came back and, and settled down in, in Warmbra um, in the Rockingham area that um, I finally actually started playing cricket. So it wasn't probably until ten or eleven I think until I actually got, in, got involved in the game. And was that just sort of in the backyard with your dad and brother or did you go to sort of Milo have a go back then or straight into a team or how did that look? Yeah, so um, yeah, had a had a little brother and a little sister who spent many hours in the backyard along with mum and dad um, playing games of cricket. And um, yeah, it wasn't until we moved to Warmer that I actually got the opportunity to go down and uh, to the local cricket club, which just happened to be down the road, which was handy. And um, in a in a um, modified rules game um, was my was my first outing, and then moved into the under 11s and under 13s pretty quickly after that. Awesome. And then what age did you start to, to get some sort of coaching, I suppose? You obviously had a coach at the, at the team, but did you start to get private coaching or one-on-one coaching at, at some point in your teenage years? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, Dad was a huge help for me, particularly early on. I had some really good coaches when I, when I was um, that young age and um, still remember a lot of them. Um, and, but yeah, Dad, Dad was probably the, the main the main guy that I used, uh, particularly up until I got to about 16 or 17 years of age, um, and then started working with um, other other coaches one-on-one. Uh, I'd go up to, Dad would drive me up to the Wacker a couple of times of the week to, to be involved in a couple of the, the junior squads up there, um, and it just sort of progressed from there. And so was your dad a cricketer himself? 
No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. But his way of, of getting involved in my cricket was to be around either as a coach or an umpire. Um, he used to umpire when I was, I, I moved, um, I, my first district cricket was at Fremantle for the under 15s and dad came up and he was the, either the coach one year or he was the umpire the next year and I was bowling my little left arm leggies and um, dad was umpiring so I probably got a few favourable LBs along the <laughs> way but um, he was always involved along the way. Awesome. And then, so in, back to your teenage years, was that sort of like, were you training every single day or was just something you did a few times a week for a bit of fun? How did that look in your, in your teenage years? Yeah, no, not, not from that point. Cricket was something that I loved doing, um, but it probably wasn't the enormous focus for me in terms of I didn't think it was going to be a career path for me. I, I thought about one day hoping to play first class cricket or playing for Australia, but um, at that point, I was just a teenage kid who liked hanging out with his mates, um, played some cricket, and we all played cricket together, and that was probably um, what kept us together was being able to play with your mates through that period. And um, yeah, it wasn't until probably I got to that sort of under 17 level, um, and I actually got picked for the, the West Australian under 17s team on the back of some, some great performances and some training that um, I actually started to take it a bit more seriously. Yeah, nice one. And you, you've mentioned your dad um, was a big influence. Did you have any other mentors growing up and or did you idolise any cricketers? And also, who, who were your mentors throughout your career? Yeah, so I've had, I've had a number of mentors. Yeah, dad was a, a huge influence on me, um, particularly in the early years. I, I used to go down, he'd take me to the WACA. Like I said, we lived in Safety Bay and the, the trek from, or Warmbra, the trek from getting to, from Warmbra to the WACA was a little bit more difficult back then than what it is now with the freeway. Um, so yeah, I mean, for a good hour, hour and a half, twice a week, each way, Dad would take me up for for um, junior squad training, um, and so that was a huge commitment on his behalf, and 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 uh, that that played a huge part in my development. But um, yeah, along the way, we we go up to games, watch games. I love watching um, Tom Moody bat or. Mike Hussey, Damien Martin, um, Jeff Marsh, even when I was a bit younger. Um, just love watching these iconic WA players um, when I got the opportunity to go and watch a bit of Sheffield Shield cricket. Um, then as, as I moved through my career, I had um, a couple of different mentors. Um, Paul Terry became quite important to me uh, when I moved from Rockingham up to play grade cricket at Melville uh, when I was 18, 19. Um, he played a, a big part in my development during that period and then um, Wayne Andrews who's probably been my batting coach, well was my batting coach for the majority of my first class career was always someone who knew my game incredibly well. Um, he was someone who I could bounce ideas off who was outside of the Wacker system at that time um, but was someone who if I went over to England and played or if I was away for any period of time he was someone I could talk to about my game and, and when I got back he'd be able to tell whether um, or if something was different in my game after I'd hit three or four balls he'd, he'd know straight away and I think that was so crucial for me to have that person outside of the system who knew my game incredibly well who, um, who I could work with as well. Awesome, awesome. On that note, we'll give a shout out to all the parents um, who are listening. Bogsy's mentioned his dad used to drive him up. My mum used to get up early and, and take me to training. So shout out to all you parents for doing great things for your kids. Um, now, you, you mentioned your left arm Chinaman. You started, you were a junior, you were quite a talented left arm Chinaman from all reports. 
You then, um, I think the story is you went to the academy and you might have come back as a batter and you played, made a career out of being a batter who bowls left arm orthodox. Can you take us back to that and tell us how that all evolved? Yeah, so, well, technically I started as a left arm tear away at uh, <laughs> under 13s, um, but then got to under 15 level and hurt my back and, and couldn't bowl my, my, uh, my left arm very medium pace at the time. But um, so I decided to take up and, and try a few left arm leg spin or Chinaman. Um, and the first game I bowled them in, I, I took six wickets. So I thought, oh, I'll... I'll persist with this for a little while. I still remember the game at Stevens Reserve. Uh, Marcus North was playing in the, the opposition against Wanneroo. Um, and yeah, so it sort of developed from there. So all through my junior career, under 17s, under 19s, I, I went to England with the Australian under 19s team, primarily as a left arm wrist spinner who batted eight or nine in the lineup um, during that tour in 1999. Uh, and then was lucky enough to go to the Cricket Academy under Rod Marsh in Adelaide in 2000 and it was there that um, not necessarily my, my bowling took a back seat but my batting developed a lot during that, during that period. Um, I worked really hard on my batting during that time. Um, and then after that period the left arm leggy sort of faded away a little bit. Um, <clears throat> it's an incredibly difficult art as I was finding out more and more and it got to the point where I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I uh, gave them up for a little while. Um, fortunately my batting had really progressed by that stage and so um, my worth as a player in the team was probably more so with the bat than what it was with the ball um, to the point where uh, one day at South Perth I bowled a couple of long hops, a couple of full tosses um, and that was it. Never bowled them again after that. So my transition from left arm wrist spin to, to batter went from under-19s left arm wrist spinner to then making my first class debut as a batter at age 22, 23. And was that through just volume or did you sort of change your belief about, hang on a minute, I'm actually quite a good batter here? Or what, what did it sort of, what was the difference from you being an eight or nine to then saying, okay, I can actually be a top order player? Yeah, it probably started under 17's level. I got an opportunity during the carnival to, as a night watchman. Um, so I came in at three against Northern Territory, I think it was, faced a couple of overs that night and then batted the next day and got 100. So that was probably the, the moment that I thought, well, Maybe, maybe I can play as a batter or maybe this is something that I can pursue a little bit more. And after that, it was really volume because yeah. I was probably a, a fair way behind in terms of the other batters and the level that they were at at that stage. But I had a, a fair belief in my own game, um, but it, it was very much a, f a matter of getting a lot of volume in over that time. Nice one. Now, any, any young cricketers listening or watching um, it's a great lesson that you just you just don't know where you're going to end up and make sure you're trying to work on all facets of your game. Um, it's really important to try and develop your maybe your second or third skill because you might end up like Vogue's, you might be a spinner now and end up um, averaging 60 in test cricket. So moving forward, you then sort of start, made your debut um, in first class cricket and then you dominated Australian domestic cricket for a number of years. Um, you did very well and then it wasn't until you were about 27, um, 28 where you got your first taste of international cricket in ODI in 2020. Um, did you always think that selection at the next level would come and at times um, when things maybe were tough, what was driving you? Was it that carrot of playing international cricket that was driving you to continue to get better? Yeah, so made my made my first class debut in 2002 and that was on the back of 
uh, winning the Ollie Cooley medal, the, the local grade medal here in Perth. Um, I scored 500s in the season, um, which again, just sort of, I guess, gave me that self-belief that I was, I was ready and, and able to take that next step, but um, didn't get an opportunity during that season, but got, a, got an opportunity the next season at the back end. Um, made my first class debut with Bo Casson and Luke Ronke. All three of us debuted in the same game and those guys went on to pretty good careers as well. So um, <clears throat> played four games and then didn't get another game for 12 months. So um, I think during that time I was not, I hadn't sort of given up, but I was a little unsure about where I stood in, in terms of WA cricket. I'd, I'd had a, a little bit of a taste and I certainly wanted more, but throughout that 12 month period, um, there was no opportunities. WA were playing some good cricket and to be fair, I wasn't bashing down the door in grey cricket. Um, my 500s the season before or two years before turned into five scores of 60 or 70 or 80, which doesn't look nearly as good as what 500s do. So I wasn't probably putting my name in lights enough during that period and it wasn't until the, the following season where I started the year really well and then got that opportunity. So um, that was where my career sort of really uh, began to blossom and then it was a period of the, the next couple of years where I wouldn't say I dominated um, domestic cricket. I, I played really well in white ball cricket, in particular 50 over cricket, um, which is where I did get my first opportunity. Um, first class cricket, I was going okay, um, but I don't. I wouldn't say I was ever really dominating it. Um, and just on that, I think a lot of players contact us and say they struggle to change between 2020 and, and two day cricket in, in junior cricket. How as a, as a very elite cricketer, how did you manage the sort of your game from white ball cricket um, to, to red ball cricket. You might play a white ball game, especially in England, you might play a white ball game and a few days later you've got a red ball game. How did you manage your sort of your practice and your preparation? Yeah, I think as I learned over time that um, you have to be really comfortable and know how you want to approach each form of the game. Um, back then, I was really confident and really happy with how I was approaching my 50 over white ball cricket. Um, I was less sure around first class cricket and, my, and probably my statistics showed that. Um, my, my white ball numbers were, were a lot better than my red ball and I, I, and I look back now and I think it was purely because I had a very good understanding of my white ball game and how I could rotate strike, how I could find boundary options. Um, but my red ball game probably wasn't quite as refined at, at that stage and so I was probably still trying to work that out. Then we introduced 2020 cricket a little bit later on and now all players around the world have to be able to jump between different formats. And um, I think players are getting better at it purely because they have to. Um, more cricket gets played now, so the more you have to jump between formats is, is just inevitable. So um, I guess my advice on that would be to, just to have a really clear understanding about how you want to play your game in each form of the game. And that at least gives you an opportunity or gives you a chance to, to give yourself the best chance, I guess. Excellent. And now, you played your last white ball game for Australia in September 2013 and despite having an ODI batting average of almost 46 and a, a strike rate of 87, it was almost two years until you got um, selected for the test team. You were 34, 35 around that time and a lot of people might have thought your international career was over. You obviously had other ideas and you went on to have a, a record breaking season but what was driving you at that stage? I was probably one of those people who thought my international career was over. Um, yeah look I was 
I was 33 years of age. Um, we'd just come back from India and um, we'd lost the series. It was a really high scoring series. Um, and I'd done okay. I, I, I was I was okay. I'd averaged mid forties um, throughout my career and, and during that series, and thought I'd done okay. But um, uh, Darren Lehman came in as coach and, and sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Look, we can't have Michael Clark, George Bailey, and Adam Voges in the in the same team. You all play a very similar role, um, and there's not room for three of you." Michael Clark was the captain. George Bailey was the vice captain. So it wasn't too difficult to work out who was going to miss out. So. Um, that was really disappointing, that was hard to hear, I thought I'd been going okay, but um, yeah, look, it, that took me a little while to, to I guess, get over that disappointment, um, but then I got my focus back to um, the, the real reason that I started playing cricket was to hang out with my mates and play some good cricket and hopefully win some stuff as a team, and um, I don't think I ever lost that, but most of the mo more enjoyable moments of my career are around having team success, and I think that really became a big focus for me. I'd taken over the leadership with Western Australia. Um, we hadn't won anything in a, in a very long time and so I put a lot of my energy into trying to build um, that group of players to be able to compete at the highest level and um, compete in Sheffield Shield finals, one day finals and, and big bash finals um, in Australian domestic cricket. And, um, and so putting all my energy into that meant that um, meant that I was free to just go out and play, play the game my way. And I just had a freak 12 months where everything clicked. Um, I had some really good processes in, in place um, with how I prepare for each game. Um, and so I went through a period where I got starts in every game and then I was just really hungry. Once I got in, no one was going to get me out. And, and I went through that whole 12, 18 month period where I felt very confident every time I walked to the crease. And I knew that if I got past my first 20 or 30 balls, then they weren't getting me out. And that was a nice place to be. Absolutely. And that's where you went on to score 1,215 runs in 10 matches and set all sorts of records and won all sorts of awards. So was it the fact that you maybe took your attention off yourself and off sort of playing at a higher level and, and focused on the group was that one of the things that you, you've touched on there that you think was a big change? Or was, it, was there any technical or other mental changes that you made in that period? I, th I think there was a, a lot of little things that probably contributed to it. Um, just uh, the kids were a little bit older now, so I was probably getting a bit more sleep, which helped. Um, but my life balance with my family and my cricket was really good. Um, so I was in a good space with that sort of thing. Um, uh, my routines that I spoke about, I, I was very specific in how I would go about preparing for each game. I would, I would sit down and write about the opposition players that I was going to face the, night, the, the next day or the next game um, and have a really clear understanding about how I thought they were going to try and get me out and then how I was going to counter that. So every time I walked to the crease I had a pretty good idea of what was coming at me um, and how I wanted to play against particular deliveries. And so. Um, having that clarity when I was out there made my decision making probably a little bit better than, than what it had been um, and then that was just the, the ability to keep doing it for a long period. Awesome, awesome and you, you sort of touched on was there any other part of your preparation that you changed? Anything else? Were you, were you hitting more balls or hitting less balls or <coughs> you mentioned getting more sleep that's a, a hugely important factor in, in anyone's career. Is there anything else in your sort of your routine or your preparation that was, was it different at that point? 
Oh, no, nothing that was overly different. Um, we'd made a couple of little technical changes uh, once Jay Justin Langer came on board. Um, so I think they would they were all working really well by that stage. Um, we'd sort of nailed that down. Whether I hit more or less balls, um, I tried to hit more of them out in the middle than what I did at training by that stage, and, and it worked really well. So um, I got really specific with my training. Um, it was very much a, a quality over quantity because I, I, was, I was batting for long periods of time, which was, which was great. So um, yeah, I was, I was really specific about how I wanted to go about it. And, and once I knew that my game was ready, I'd walk out of the net, I was ready to go. So I didn't need to hit balls just for the sake of hitting balls. Um, and, and during that time, I, I know it's easy to, to try and hit balls when things aren't going well, or, um, but I, I just tr I found a really good balance. I found a really good balance in my training so that every time I walked out or every time I walked into the middle for a game, I was ready to go. Now I've taken little bits and pieces from a lot of good players that I've played with over the years. Um, another big thing that I would do was really engage in the partnership with, with my mate at the other end. Um, and particularly during that year, Michael Klinger had come over from South Australia and we had a number of 100, 200 and even 300 run partnerships during that time. He had a fantastic season as well. Um, but it was just the ability to keep each other going and a little method that I learned from Simon Kadich was just to take the partnership up in tens each time and just tick off a 10. Once you'd got to 10, let's get to 20 mate and then once we get to 20 and we just keep it as simple as getting up to 10s each time and it's amazing how quickly the scoreboard ticks along if you just have those little goals that you can tick off along the way um, and that made a huge part that that played a huge part in it as well awesome um, now you've just touched on Michael Clark and Kadich you played with and against the world's best players over the last 15 20 years um, what are some other things, what are some other traits, or what are some common themes that you've seen in the world's best players that you, you've spent some time with? I mean, every, everyone's a little bit different, um, but I've never seen anyone get there without working incredibly hard at their game. Um, I look at the way Steve Smith plays now, and I've, having seen how he trains, it doesn't surprise me at all that he's the number one ranked batsman in the world at the moment. Um, he hits as many balls as I've ever seen a batsman hit at training. Um, and look, that's not for everyone. That's not everyone's cup of tea, but for him, he obviously needs that and that's what works for him. And um, he's been incredibly, incredibly successful with that. But I think a work ethic and a confidence in your own ability are two of the things that every great player has. Um, regardless of technique or the way that they score their runs, the fact that they have a, a genuine confidence in the way that they can go about it um, and they work incredibly hard. I, I think they are the two traits that probably stands everyone apart. Yeah. We'll get back to Vogsy in just a second, guys. But if you missed out on last week's episode, it was our first ever one with England cricketer David Milan. Here's some of what you missed. You're quite lucky because you play against bowlers quite a lot, so you can sort of work out what they're going to do and you know what they're going to do. And it's about having a plan A to them and a plan B. So when it happens, you sort of feel like you can just watch the ball and you can let instinct take over because you practice just practice those things. So, um, so yeah, I'd say I'd do that, and then in my training, I'd I'd do that a little bit, and then I'd just do my normal routine, which is making sure I'm hitting the balls in the area that I want. Um, you know, we mentioned about me doing work with Gary and simplifying my game, and I'd almost make sure I practice those three or four shots so that I can feel comfortable going in the game. That if someone gets it wrong. I can score off those areas, which is all batting is about, it's about being confident. So be sure to download and listen to that episode with David. Now let's get back to Vogsy. Nice one. Um, now, going back sort of through your career, you then made your test 
um, debut and you, you scored 100 on debut against the West Indies and our mutual friend Big Stewie was there. Shout out to Big Stewie if he's listening. Um, so you then sort of started well, progressed through to the Ashes and had a pretty tough start in the Ashes that year, um, 2015 Ashes in England. You finished the Ashes um, with two really hard fought half centuries. What was going through your mind or how did you feel and what did you do to bounce back from that sort of low point, I suppose, when things were tough and not going your way and people were saying, oh, he's too old, he should be dropped in England? Yeah. I, I guess I always knew that when you're debuting, when, you, when you're playing your first test at the age of 35, that it was never going to be for a long time. It was, it was, so I, I wanted to make it a good time for, for as long as it lasted. Um, and yes, the West Indies was brilliant. Um, it was great to get some opportunity there. I, I guess getting picked for that tour and then the Ashes tour, I, I wasn't sure if I was even going to play. Um, uh, and had Chris Rogers not been hit in the head two days before the first test in Dominica, I probably wouldn't have played. So um, yeah, we got to England and the buzz and the hype that surrounds the Nashville series is like anything else, is, is not like anything else, sorry. And I remember as a young boy watching, staying up late with my little brother, watching Ashes series and, and just thinking how, how awesome would that be to be able to play in an Ashes series. So to be able to, to actually be part of that was, was incredible. And yet, yes, the results didn't go away. And I had a really, I had a poor series, to be honest. Um, I got to 30 in my first innings at Cardiff and chipped Ben Stokes straight to cover. Um, and I was so dirty on myself because that went against everything that I've been doing so well a lot of the time. Um, was that I, a technical mistake or no, a... that was purely a mental mistake. It was late in the day on day three, I think, or two or three. Um, and it was just a, a poor mistake. He bowled well to me for a period of time. Um, and rather than just waiting it out like I had been doing for the last 12 months, I decided to play at a ball that I didn't need to. And, <coughs> excuse me, Bounced a little bit more, got caught at short cover, and it was a really soft dismissal, and, um, and that was really disappointing. Mark Wood bowled me a pretty good ball, second or third ball in the second innings, which I nicked. Um, I've always been a big believer that if you nick one in your first five, ten balls, then so be it. Like Everyone nicks them early. Um, I was more disappointed with the fact that I got out when I'd actually got a start and got to 30. Um, so yeah, look, I missed out in the first test at Cardiff, which was a really good batting wicket. And then that put a lot of pressure on me, um, not starting the series well. We went to Lords, we won comfortably. Um, I only got, I think I got 25 in the second test at Lords, batted once. Um, and then England changed their, changed their pitches and changed their whole tactics about how they wanted to approach the rest of the series. We played on green seamers, basically. Um, which was tough work. The Duke's balls were swinging around. They were overcast a lot of time. There was plenty of green grass on the wickets. So batting all of a sudden became twice as hard. Well, it felt like to me that it became twice as hard. So to then miss out at Edgebaston, um, to lose that test, and then to be part of getting bowled out for 60 at Trent Bridge um, were probably two of the lower parts of my career, well, certainly my international career, but probably my entire career to to be walking off after getting getting out in that first innings at Trent Bridge, I, I genuinely thought that that might be my last test. And so going into the second innings of that match, um, we were miles behind the game. Um, 
we, we weren't going to save the game, we let alone any chance of winning it. Um, so I went out to bat in that second innings and I just said to myself, right, they're not getting me out. And I look back and I don't think that was a great mentality to have at the time. Um, because I fought really hard, but my feet didn't move. I didn't play any shots. I just I just stayed and survived and had a little bit of luck along the way, which which I needed. Um, but they didn't get me out, and so I managed to hang in for long enough. We lost that test match. Um, fortunately, that that 50 that I got in the second innings and the fact that we'd lost the series meant that I probably got another opportunity. Batted a lot better um, at the Oval in the fifth test. Um, and then just felt like I was starting to bat like I knew I could bat at the back end of that series, which once it was all over was really disappointing. Um, I would have loved to have done that at the start, but that's how it worked out. So was there a point where you sort of sat down and thought, okay, I've got to, I've got to sort of change something here, or it just you just went in with that mentality and it was just a fo you fought hard, had a little bit of luck, which you, you probably didn't have early in the series. Yeah. Um, I know that Stokes took that one-hander and, and things didn't go your way. Was but was there anything that you did specifically that sort of changed the way you sort of went about it? I just, um, I just I refined my game. I, I basically took out any driving in my game. So if they bowled me a half volley, I pretty much just blocked it back to them. I just waited for them to get straight to me or I waited for a cut shot or a pull shot because they were my strengths and that's what my game's been based around a lot of the time. I worked out fairly early in my career that they were probably the areas that I was going to score the majority of my runs and so I made sure that I was really good when the ball got straight or if I got a cut shot so I literally just waited until they got to those areas um, and again I, I look back at the innings and I've watched the replay and it wasn't pretty like I didn't actually play very well but I actually the majority of my runs came through clipping through mid wicket or a cut shot and that's um, so from that point I was able to get through that and then I expanded a little bit more um, in the fifth test. That's amazing. That's sort of um, a story I've, I've heard many times before is when Tendulkar scored a double hundred at the SCG, he did the same thing. He said he was nicking off and then he took the cover drive away and he was the same, just left half volleys outside off and made them bowl straight, made them bowl to his cut. And it shows incredible mental toughness and discipline. Um, so then you went, came back to Australia and went on an amazing run, uh, which included 400s in six innings, a couple of double hundreds. You started being compared to Bradman. Um, your test average was incredible. What was sort of your mindset in that stage? That must have felt amazing, especially after the lows of England. And then what was sort of coming off the back of one double hundred? You could easily relax and get comfortable, but what was driving you to keep churning out the runs? Yeah, I was really lucky throughout most of that series because I was coming in the first test of the Gabba. I came in at three for 300. Um, and I mean, uh, David Warner, Joe Burns had got big runs. I think Usman had got runs as well. Um, so I was coming in facing a fairly tired attack. I wasn't even sure if I was going to play the first test of that summer because we'd obviously lost the Ashes. Um, again, I was 36 by then. Um, if the selectors wanted to make a change, well then I'd probably given them a reason to um, with the way I'd played in England. So um, going into that first test in Brisbane, I got a few runs in the in the first Shield game down in Tassie um, and then was lucky enough to get picked into that game and um, went, into that, went into that first test. Again, felt like I was fighting for my spot still. Um, so to go in, I guess, at three for 300 was very much a luxury. Um, and was able to then 
craft a, an innings against some pretty tired bowlers, which certainly helped um, my confidence and the way that I could start the series and start the summer. I, I think back at starting poorly in England, I was really determined to start well during the Australian summer because I then thought it would, it would really set my whole summer up. So um, to play well in Brisbane, to get some confidence out of that, to win that test match and then to come to Perth um, and score 100 against New Zealand at the Wacker at my home ground in front of my friends and family is probably the most, well, it'll be my favourite innings of, it is my favourite innings of my career. It wasn't my best one. Um, it was on a flat wicket. Um, but to get 100 in that test match, I, I took an enormous amount out of that um, and then was able to then just continue that on throughout the season. Again, making sure that when I got in, I made sure that I, I kept going and, and scoring as many runs as I could. Awesome, awesome. Now, do you have any, something that we're really interested in with high performers and successful people is their habits and routines? Do you have any sort of daily or weekly habits and what did your routines look like leading into a test match or leading into a shield game? Yeah, again, <clears throat> um, routine-wise was very much my, my mental routines were very consistent. Um, how I prepared physically in terms of training and that sort of thing, they could vary from game to game. Like I didn't have to necessarily hit or train for a certain amount of time um, before each game. Like I, like I mentioned, when I was ready to go, I was ready to go and that was it. And then it was just more about the the mental routine and making sure that that was consistent throughout. And there was times where I thought, oh, do I really need to do this? Like I'm playing pretty well at the moment, um, I'm batting well, do I need to keep doing this? But that was the one big discipline that I made sure that I continued to do, regardless of whether I was playing test cricket, um, first class cricket for WAI, I even started doing it when I was playing grade cricket as well, um, because it just got me into a really good um, mind frame to be able to then go out and, and bat as well as I possibly could. So it was just, and again, I look over the notes of what I've written and um, there's nothing genius in there. Um, it's just more a reminder of what I'd been doing well and again, how people were going to try and get me out and how I was going to counter that. So a lot of it revolved around leaving well early, um, playing straight early. If they gave me a cut shot to just smack it basically to make sure that I was ready for that. I always knew that if I was sharp, if I could cut the ball early in meetings, I knew I was sharp and I was picking length up well then. So um, yeah, in terms of routines, it was very much just keeping my the mental side of my game as consistent as possible. It's interesting you said, I had a chat with Steve Smith a little while ago and he spoke, he was over here for a one day series and he spoke about how he knows how Pakistan were gonna get him out and it was a couple of days before an ODI at the, at the Wacker and he said they're going to bowl wide to him and he's going to do this and do that. And it was incredible to see him then execute it and score 100 and, and just by having that mental preparation. So something the best players do by the sounds of it. Um, something we get asked quite a lot, we, I see in the sessions I, I coach, is, is players, when they make a mistake, they get really frustrated and really annoyed. I suppose back in your early part of your career, you're a lot older and wiser now, but... How did you deal with a mistake? Say you'd play a miss or you maybe you'd get dropped or you didn't quite hit them as well as you'd like to. How did you um, deal with a mistake and move forward? Yeah, I, I certainly deal with it a lot better now than, than what I used to. And I think that was just through making a lot of mistakes and, and getting incredibly frustrated and then realising that it didn't matter how frustrated or angry I got about it, that wasn't going to fix it. Um, so I, I worked out quite quickly that 
I needed to have a balance about how I would deal with disappointment um, and the game itself because it's a brilliant game, but um, there are so many highs and lows within the game, within within the team performance and within in your own individual performance that you need to be able to find a balance. Um, and everyone's balance is going to be a little bit different, but a balance that allows you to not get too far ahead of yourself when things are going well and to never get too disappointed when things don't go your way. Because if you continue to do the things, and, and probably the thing that it took me the longest to learn was to keep trusting that what I was doing was right, even though the results weren't how I liked or how I wanted them to be, I had to continue to trust that the way I was approaching the game and the way that I wanted to play the game was right for me. Um, yes, you'd always tinker a little bit. I was forever tinkering around with a little bits and pieces with my technique. Um, but just having that trust in myself that for the next opportunity that I got, and that was the biggest thing, that, one of the other things that I really learned was that the, the, next imp the most important thing for me as a batter, the most crucial thing for me was the next ball that I faced. What, what has happened has happened. I couldn't change that. That was gone now. Um, they talk about mental toughness and resilience. For me, the definition of resilience for a cricketer is focusing on what's important and that's the next ball that you get to face or the next ball that you bowl. Absolutely. Now, you spoke a little bit about balance Absolutely. there. How, in your younger years, obviously now being a father, you've got two young children, uh, Xavier and Ella, how did you switch off away from the game when you were a bit younger? I'm sure that they take up a lot of your time now, but how did you sort of get away and, and relax and, and take your mind off the game, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I, I studied early, I was working. Um, for the first few years that I was a first-class cricketer, I was still working part-time, if not full-time. Um, it was a little bit different back then in terms of um, our training schedules and, and that sort of thing. So you had a lot more time on your hands to, to continue to work or, or study. So, um, yeah, it was... For me, it was always finding something away from the game that could take my mind off it so that I wasn't thinking about cricket 24-7. No doubt the kids have played a huge role in that because they don't give me a choice. Um, I've got no time to think about the game when they're around, which is great. Um, but yeah, always having something, whether it's an interest or a hobby, um, some study or, or whatever it may be, I, I always tried to find something that would take my mind away from thinking about cricket 24-7 because when I didn't have that in my life I found that mentally I was almost shot before I went out to bat I'd been thinking about it for so long um, so finding a balance was important for for me and I think it's important for everyone really all right now I just want to talk a little bit before we finish up about leadership in the latter part of your career um, you created a reputation as not only a great captain and you had a lot of success with WA the Scorchers and, and Middlesex but also a great leader. Um, what do you believe are the key factors that make a good leader? Uh, I, I think my captaincy journey and my leadership journey um, developed along the way. I, I, I'm a big believer that captains um, learn the most about themselves and, and their style of captaincy by actually going out in the middle and doing it and, and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. So I made plenty of mistakes along along the way. Um, I made mistakes right up until the last game of cricket that I played, but um, I found that if as long as I made conscious effort to, to move on and, and learn from those mistakes, I think that helped me become a better leader each time. I think communication and, and genuinely getting to know your players and, and genuinely caring about your players 
plays a huge role in, in leadership, particularly within a cricket team. It helps you to understand how your players think. It helps you to communicate with them about what you're trying to do with them. Um, but it just makes them feel comfortable with you as well. And um, that, that's the most important part. Everyone's different. Everyone has their own personalities. Um, everything, everyone has their own different motivations. So it's working out what that is for each different person and, and treating them and communicating with them accordingly, um, which I think was probably my biggest strength as a captain. Um, I always felt that I had to play well myself. Um, I didn't have to be the best player in the team, um, but I, I, I always knew that I had to make sure my own game and my own performance was in order, in order to uh, lead the way in, in that respect um, from captaincy. Um, but yeah, and, and just to be, again, again, just to be level, just to be level, to never get too disappointed when things didn't go well, to be honest with players, because if they needed a kick up the bum occasionally, I was happy to do that, um, but then was very quickly to, to, to move on from that as well. Um, and then to celebrate the wins and that sort of thing, but just to make sure that the boys are ready to go for their, their next opportunity. So um, that doesn't happen overnight. That takes a while and, and time and effort to, to develop. Um, but yeah, like I said, I certainly made plenty of mistakes along the way as well. And even before your captaincy, when you were sort of playing under Marcus North, you were still a leader amongst the group. What what sort of things should do you think are great um, things people can focus on? I suppose if they want to be leaders without the title of, of a captain. Yeah, I think you've got to understand um, the values of of your team, of your club, um, and how your team want to conduct themselves and how they want to play their cricket and if you understand that and you buy into that fully then well then you are a leader regardless of whether you've got the the captain or the, the C next to your name um, if you're able to drive that and continue to live that each day then you are leading in an effect and, and the more people that you can get on board with that um, the better the group will progress and uh, to the point where when I re retired from state cricket in WA there's probably six or seven blokes who could have taken my spot as captain because I think they all did that incredibly well. Um, and just being honest, honest with your teammates is, is one of the biggest values that, um, or one of my biggest, or I, I think was one of my biggest strengths during my time as a captain. Um, you have to deliver some really tough messages sometimes and messages that blokes don't want to hear. But I've always found that if you're honest and you're upfront with them, they'll respect the decision. They might not like you for a little while, but they'll at least respect that you've been you've been honest with them. Awesome. And now your career is almost over. Obviously, a couple of games to go for the great Melville Storm, but you're transitioning into some coaching. You've been away with the W under 19s um, a few months ago. Is that the long-term plan for you going forward, try and get into some coaching? Certainly at the moment it is, yeah. Um, been lucky enough to do a little bit with the 19s and um, a tour game and a couple of second 11 games. and um, It's something that I've really enjoyed. And um, yeah, it's something that certainly in the near future I'd, I'd like to uh, continue to do. Uh, I'll do my, my level three during the year and, um, and hopefully there'll be a few more opportunities to do that along the way. I'd, I love the game. Um, hopefully, I'll never be too far away from it. Um, but at this stage, yeah, hopefully um, a little bit of coaching would be good today. Nice one. Well, hopefully you're not lost to the game. Too much knowledge and wisdom to not pass on. Now, what's the best piece of advice you've 
ever received throughout your career, if you can think of anything? Jeez. Um, best piece of advice. Um, enjoy the game, enjoy your mates, and watch the ball. They're probably the three very simple, very simple things, but cricket's a simple game that we tend to complicate a fair bit, so keep it simple. Absolutely, and I think a lot of people forget to enjoy it at times. They put so much pressure on themselves to perform that they forget to enjoy it, and that's when you're performing your best. So lastly, what's your definition of success? What do you think success is? Uh, I guess gaining an outcome that you see as being positive. Um, that may be different for everyone. Um, success for a number 10 batter might be completely different to what it is for your number three or your number four bowler, uh, oh, batter, sorry. Um, team success is about being able to celebrate with your mates uh, after a good win. Um, but individual success, I think, is is just that, it's individual. And um, everyone talks about getting hundreds or taking fifers, but for each individual, that might not be what they deem as being successful. So finding an outcome that you think that you can achieve and then going out and achieve, achieving it, I believe is success. Awesome, and why do you play cricket? Because I love it. I'm 38 years old and I'm coming out to play a little bit more grey cricket at the end because I'm playing with my mates there's an opportunity to hopefully play in some finals um, and hopefully win something as a team and that's the reason why I started and that's why I'll, I'll finish off that way as well. Awesome, well Vogsy thanks very much for your time, Thank really you, really appreciate it and hope our viewers and listeners have really enjoyed an insight from uh, such a great um, cricketer, great leader and someone we all, um, you should all be aspiring to sort of take aspects of what Vogsy's achieved in his career into your game so cheers very much. There you have it, legends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Adam Voges will go down as statistically one of the best test batsmen of all time, but for a huge part of his career, it didn't look like he would even play a single test match. It's a story of perseverance, resilience, and deep belief, as well as meticulous preparation. If you enjoyed it or learned something, then please share it with your friends and on your social media pages. Remember to tag me, at Skulls5, as I'd love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to share it and connect with Vogsy as well at at AdamVogus442 on Instagram. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Cricket Mentoring. We're growing it quickly and have some great content on there, including the video of this interview. Thanks very much for joining me on this episode and being here from the very start. Love to you all. Now go out and get it done, legends. <laughs>